0: Here's the Morrison Orpheus Choir with Guide Me O Thou Great Jehovah. Choir with Guide Me O Thou Great Jehovah. Uh, the music mainly with at least a Welsh connection for St David's Day tomorrow. So it's back to the Morrison Orpheus Choir again, this time for As the Deer Pants for the Water.
1: festivals are popular up and down the country, including our own Piclocherie Winter Words Festival. The Catholic magazine, The Tablet, decided to have a Catholic literary festival to celebrate Catholic writers. Mariella Frostrup talks to the director of The Tablet, Kathy Galvin, and also to some of the authors taking part in the festival.
2: And this year the catholic newspaper the tablet joins the throng marking its 175th anniversary with a books festival in celebration speakers include andrew o'hagan antonia fraser and david lodge the latter told us about the relationship between his writing and his faith earlier
1: this year i was very influenced by writers like graham green and francois Mauriac in france and um, even in war And I felt this was a rather elite group of writers who had an angle on life which was distinctive and which, uh, uh, well, it was a a show I wanted to be part of at that time. But over the years, I've grown out of the attitudes and the philosophy behind that. I'm not a practising Catholic, really. I'm still influenced by it and fascinated by it, what's going on in it. Uh, And it's been a great source
2: of material. David Lodge... Well, earlier I spoke to David Almond, award-winning author of children's books including Skellig and Clay, and to one of the festival organisers, Cathy Galvin, who's also a director of The Tablet. I began by asking her why they'd chosen a festival around such a specific topic when others prefer to be more of a broad church encompassing a kaleidoscope of influences and ideas.
3: It's a risk, but sometimes you've just got to take a risk, haven't you? And I think this festival is really looking at the legacy of catholic literature and where it might lead but it's not exclusive and there's a whole constituency of people and many writers who'll be at the festival who are influenced by their catholic background feel a little excluded from it but actually when they think about the process of writing and not just childhood influence but but think about the way that their work moves beyond and i think this is probably something that's key to all the writers who will come to the festival, the way it moves them beyond the secular, the way it gives them a sense of something beyond the everyday reality. People like Hilary Mantel, for example, who grew up as a working class Northern Catholic has talked about the influence of that on her own writing. David Lodge
2: mentioned Graham Greene and Evelyn Warren and you could add Muriel Spark and of course Hilary Mantel and Edna O'Brien. They're all great writers whose faith played an important part in their work, but they're also all very different writers. So what do you think
3: Catholicism gave to their writing? They are very different. And they're all writing out of their cultures and at different times. So the English experience, we tend to think of Graham Greene and Evelyn Waugh, perhaps Anthony Burgess and that very male hierarchical tradition. With Irish writers, there's been a change, obviously, in recent years as well. So you have the more classic writers like Edna O'Brien, who you just mentioned, who are writing from a sense of haunting melancholy and guilt. And I my suspicion is, and it will be interesting within this festival to see what happens. My suspicion is that there's been a move away from guilt, and a lot of writers today, Colin Toybin, a lot of poets like Michael Simmons Roberts, and Steve Ely, they're exploring something more transformative and redemptive and not about guilt.
0: We'll come back to that discussion, but meantime. Based on words of St Francis of Assisi, here is Make Me a Channel of Your Peace and it's sung by Catherine Jenkins.
2: David Armand, you're speaking at the festival next weekend and you were brought up a Catholic. Um, like David Lodge, you're no longer practising. So how do you feel that Catholic background is expressed in your work?
4: For a long time, I didn't want to cover it at all. I, didn't want, I thought I'd moved beyond that. I've kind of ditched it. I've solved any kind of problems around it and thought I was free. But it also went with being Northern. I also didn't want to be Northern. And it was only when I... Kind of side, got to a certain age side, and thought, oh, there's no what I can do about it. That I accepted the Catholic and Northern influences on my work. And once I did that, I found a whole kind of flow of imagery, of ritual, of language, of possibilities, which um, I'd been kind of denying to myself. And a lot of it was to do with accepting the, the force, the influence of Catholicism on me and on my work, and allowed me to see a way to move forward as a writer.
2: David Lodge talked about the tradition of Catholic writers as being a, a show he wanted to be a part of. Do you see yourself in, in, in a Catholic writing tradition in that, in that way? And, and which other writers do you admire who would have come from, from at least the same backgrounds?
4: tradition that David Lodge mentioned wasn't something that I felt part of and again maybe that's something to do with being northern and one of the traditions that I've kind of felt powerful for me has been a northern tradition to do with the Lindisfarne Gospels which reaches out across to to Ireland and also an American writers like you know the southern states writer Flannery O'Connor who for several years was a a kind of (laughs) A guide for me. She was just wonderful because she was a a southern states writer, also a Catholic. So seemed to be on the fringe of everything, just as I felt. Great stuff about what it meant to be regional, what it meant to... To have a voice that was influenced by catholicism so if we're looking uh,
2: for universal elements you know it's a religion that lends itself to the literary you know uh, the words of faith the prayers the rosary are they inspirational in themselves i mean not necessarily in terms of belief but in terms of poetry and rhythm do you think Kathy, that that's something that we
3: we find in in many exponents Yes, I think that they have their place for different writers. So, for example, Hilary Mantel would talk about the way that the catechism gave her um, a kind of vocabulary of inner secrets, if you like, that she has found useful as a writer. A poet like Michael Simmons Roberts really draws on Catholic liturgy and imagery. And, of course, there is something about the liturgy and its power within the mass that does influence literature as well. So symbolism and mysticism, I think, are really important. Isn't there a sense as well as a writer,
2: you know, the, ver- the world is so vast that the material you can draw from, endless, and, and in a way, uh, you know, the, the background of a religion like that sets up some foundations, perhaps even some walls within to operate, to, that, that narrows in a good way the scope of what you can address.
4: I think that's really important and that's something that i really learned from flannery o'connor she had this great statement you know the imagine is not free that it is bound but only when you found the boundaries of your own imagination do you then kind of paradoxically become free and i think that's what happened to me and that's happened to a lot of the writers that you recognize the limits of what you are and then recognizing the limits which this... may be catholicism you're free
3: yeah there's something about embodiment as well so yeah you know when you brought up as a catholic you are dealing with the uh, transubstantiation you're dealing with the physicality of the spirit from the off now that's a fairly huge mind concept boggling <laughs> concept and fiction and poetry are also at their best at their best artistic levels embodied physical activities you uh, you get that sense of the senses i think that's in catholicism You've said, David, um, sometimes
2: I think the reason I write for children is to tell myself with hindsight that everything, however horrible it is, uh, will work out in the end. But isn't that also a a sort of underpinning Catholic belief, the idea of of absolution, the idea of confession and forgiveness? Uh, Do you think that your past faith informs your writing even when you don't intend
4: it to? Oh, absolutely! <laughs> you can't escape it. There's no way to escape from it. And um, mm. and it is the world. You know, we, th- we think of Catholicism in many ways as being a kind of very distant, remote religion, but actually, it's a, a religion of things, of objects, of tastes, of scents, of sounds. And as a writer, that's really important as well. You know, the the real world is where where the miracle is.
0: What a friend we have in what Jesus. A
5: Silvant leaves to bear.
0: of verses in Welsh with this one as Nicky Rose sings, Here is love vast as the ocean.
1: John Plass has written a book called The Unlocking, published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. They have given us permission to broadcast his recordings, and we hear one of them now.
6: Lost in the Crowd Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, Your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. G.K. Chesterton said that a paradox could be defined as the truth standing on its head. This seems so applicable to Jesus who came to turn the world upside down. I've always found his apparent contradictions extremely interesting and instructive. The truth retains its substance but changes its shape because the doors, us, through which it must pass are so variable here's an example of that principle and it might be a helpful one for those of us who fear that their individuality is swallowed up in the great salvation plan the story from luke used to really upset me when i was little i mean fancy rotten old jesus telling everyone he hadn't got a mum after all she'd been through with him wanting to make some great religious point was no excuse for virtually disowning your own mother was it and what about his brothers they must have been really upset. Imagine it, I thought. You turn up outside the place where he's talking away as usual. You send in a nice, friendly message to say his mother and brothers are waiting to see him, and some po-faced minion comes out with a message to say he hasn't got a mother or brothers because everyone who does what God wants can be his mothers and brothers. To my childish mind, it seemed likely that, on hearing this, Mary would have marched in, arms akimbo, and given him a piece of her mind. I'll give you every one... I reckon she would have said. Time adjusted this grossly irreverent view, of course. As I grew up and read the Bible with more awareness, I sensed that Mary, quiet and wise, would simply have stored away this saying of her sons with all the other strange jigsaw pieces that she collected over the years. Something about the Gospel account suggested to me that Jesus and his mother had enjoyed a deep, warm, eye-catching across-the-room sort of relationship. Then I encountered this passage from John's Gospel. As I read about this tender, last-minute provision for his mother's future, I realized something else about Jesus. Maybe everyone could be his mother, but this was the first one he'd ever had, and he loved her. He was truly man, and he loved her. I have no mother. Mother, behold your son. I had glimpsed for the first time the amazing truth that the Jesus who produced cosmic truth, dire warnings and spiritual bombshells and the Jesus who remembered his mother's welfare at the time of his greatest agony were one and the same person. For the first time in my life I felt that my individuality, my sense of self was safe in the hands of God. We are not just units in the salvation package, but warm, complex needy human beings who are known and loved and cared for by him in special separate ways. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that, though, does it? Pray with me. Lord, we need to know that as well as saving the universe, you care for us individually. We don't mind how that happens, but if there's a person who could offer us a relationship that you would bless and approve don't let our fears and inhibitions get in the way please i see you on the cross now in my mind's eye you are in great pain but when you catch sight of me your expression lightens for a moment you will never leave me or forsake me but there is something practical i need to do in the meantime your voice is weak with pain so i must listen very hard to hear what you're saying what is he saying to you?
0: Adrian Plass. His book, The Unlocking, is published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. Welshman Harry Sequin coming up now. It's a song from the film The Student Prince. The song is I'll Walk With God.
5: This is my praise.
1: has written a series of meditations based on the psalms. Today we hear Malcolm's thoughts on Psalm 6. It's followed by the Hungarian People's Army Choir singing
7: a Hungarian
1: folk song by Bartók.
7: Domine ne in furore, a response to Psalm 6. Whose mercy wakes me at the break of day? I feel my weakness, all my bones are vexed, and all the faith in me seems worn away, as though I've lost love's memory. Perplexed by false complexities, I mime faith's part. I keep the book, but cannot read the text, unless you come. And write it in my heart Unless you help me read it through my tears And hear me out and hearing heal my hurt How could I think you punished me? My fears just magnified the shadows that I cast Till you were lost in shadow too Love hears my cries And clears the shadows of my past Flinging them back before his growing light until I recognize his face at last.
1: Gentis has produced a series of talks for us where he imagines himself to be a Bible character. Today, he takes the role of Jesus' disciple, Philip, who explains a passage in the Old Testament to an Ethiopian traveller, as described in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8.
8: Now, that's the way to travel. What a trip that was! I've seen a good many things in my life, and especially since I started following Jesus, but I've never, marked that, never seen anything like this. One moment, I'm in the water baptizing a Queen's treasury minister, and the next, I'm suddenly 30 kilometers to the north of the river. But I'd better back up and start from the beginning. My name is Philip, and as you can guess, I travel a lot. I'm a follower of Jesus, and he told us our most important work from now on was to tell people of God's love for them and that they have a Savior that forgives sins through faith in him. I believe my job description is the greatest work anyone can do. What could be more important than that? We'd just come from Samaria where there were many people who wanted to receive salvation, so we spent some time with them, teaching and healing them. I have to tell you that before Jesus came, we wouldn't have gone near Samaria because they were what we would call apostates or pagans who had turned away from the truth. Anyway, as we were on our way to other Samaritan villages, there was this, how can I describe him, an angel that stood in front of me telling me to leave everyone and go down to the road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. It was a long way from where we were, and on top of that, it was a desert road, meaning there was very little in the way of food and water. Jesus often told us to do things that seemed crazy, but just how do you disobey an angel sent by him? So, I went. Along the way, there was a royal caravan sent by a queen named Candace from Ethiopia. He was on his way to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, and as he was riding in his chariot, he was reading from a scroll of Isaiah out loud. The Holy Spirit told me that I was to catch up to that chariot and join this man, so I did. When I got to him, I asked him if he understood what he was reading. And he replied that he didn't because no one would guide him through it and help him to understand it. The passage he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate this generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The treasurer then asked me, please tell me of whom does the prophet say this of himself or someone else i know now why the lord told me to go to the desert road to gaza because i had the answers to exactly those questions this man was asking i proceeded to tell him about the life death and resurrection of jesus the attesting miracles and other prophetic scriptures in the torah I explained to him that Jesus was the only one who was qualified to serve as the sacrifice for our sins and able to open the door to be with the Father, and that it was only by faith in Jesus that anyone can be saved. told him about being baptized when someone believed in Jesus as an outward sign of inward faith. As we were continuing our journey, the man—I never did find out his name— looked to his right, where a river was flowing next to us, and exclaimed, "'Look, water!' What prevents me from being baptized? I answered him, well, if you believe with all your heart, you may. What he said next was wonderful. I can still hear it in my memory. He said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He then ordered the chariot to halt, stepped down, and he and I entered into the water. I held him in my arms, prayed for him, and firmly put his head under the water and immediately raised him back up to his new life in Christ Jesus. After that, things got really strange. The moment I raised him up out of the water after praying with my eyes closed, when I reopened them, I immediately found myself in a town called Azotas, or Ashdod, as the locals call it. Then I was no longer with this treasurer. Just like that! As quick as you blink your eye, I was in another place. Now that's what I call a way to travel. I was suddenly about 30 kilometers from where I'd been in Gaza, You can believe me or not, all I can do is tell you the truth. What do you make of it? What do I make of it? Well, that Jesus will go to any lengths to answer the right questions asked from a pure heart, which obviously this Ethiopian treasurer was doing. The question is, if you're not getting the answers you seek, are you asking the right questions? But really, what a way to travel. But it's back to
0: Wales now, and it's back to the Trioche male voice choir again, this time for, to God be the glory, great things he has done.